The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 134, a song of ascents. Behold, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who by night stand in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. The Lord who made heaven and earth bless you from Zion. Okay, I'm going to do something today which uh, is a little different, but I'm doing it so you can compare what's going on. There are two passages in the Torah, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, which parallel each other. One is in Exodus 17. We've already done that, but I'm going to read you that passage first, and then I'm going to read you our sermon text for the day. So from Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7, it says, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also, take in your hand the rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not. Here we have the rod. Hasn't been seen since that passage. Okay. We're going to go now to our sermon text, which is Numbers 20, verses 1 through 13. And you will see the obvious parallels. Then the children of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron, and the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock, and give drink to the congregation and their animals." So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, Here now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock 
twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. This was the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel contended with the Lord, and he was hallowed among them. I call this sermon the waters of Meribah because water in the Hebrew is in the plural, mayim, okay? The New King James Version chose water, but many translations will say water. So that's why I've called it that. Biblical theology is constantly argued over. There are countless doctrines which people cling to. Replacement theology says the church replaced Israel. Dispensationalism says this is incorrect and that Israel remains Israel and the church is merely grafted into the commonwealth of Israel. However, among dispensationalists, there are varying views as well. Hyper-dispensationalism attempts to divide the church and Israel even further by saying that mysteries belong to the church, but prophecy belongs to Israel. I know, as stupid as that sounds, people actually hold to that. They then go so far as to say that none of the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation are for the church that baptism isn't mandated for the Gentiles within the church, and so on. How can one tell if replacement theology is correct or if dispensationalism is? How can a traditional dispensationalist tell if hyper-dispensationalism is wrong or not? I mean, it's the same set of verses from the New Testament which are being argued over. Admittedly, most people that argue their personal view actually have no idea what the New Testament says. Rather, they have read a book, meaning a book on the subject, and they listen to the sermon, or they simply trust the pastor who tells them what is correct. But they really don't know the Bible all that well. And surprisingly, many pastors don't either. I've said this during the Thursday night Bible studies. I had a pastor once that had never read the Old Testament, and he was a great, great preacher. Those of you who knew him, he could preach like you can't believe, and he had never read the Old Testament. And then I knew another minister who had been a minister for 30 years, and he said, I'd read the Bible one time. They are like the people that watch CNN and think they're getting the straight scoop, and so they go with it. But let's suppose two people are pretty well versed in the New Testament and they still disagree on these basic doctrines. How can you tell which is correct? They both have decent sounding arguments. Our text verse comes from 1 Corinthians 10, it's verses 1 through 4. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Today's passage deals with exactly what Paul is speaking about here. In fact, unless you read the Old Testament, you wouldn't have any idea what Paul was saying. You just nod your head and have to say, okay. You'd have to agree with his words without having all the information. Fortunately, Paul's words are inspired by God, and so we know what he says is correct. The answer to the questions that I gave to you a moment ago is to study the Old Testament. If you disagree with someone on New Testament theology, guess what? The old speaks of the things in the new in type and in picture. 
But even then, one needs to be very careful or he may come up with an incorrect picture of what God is showing us. One commentary that I read on the parallel accounts of Exodus 17 and Numbers chapter 20, both of which speak of water coming from the rock when it is struck by Moses, says that the two accounts picture Christ's first and second advents. Sounds like our prophecy update today, didn't it? This is incorrect. Surprisingly, they took the information and made an incorrect assumption about what is being presented in the New Testament. And so, in order to understand proper theology in the old, you need to be properly versed in the new. But to understand proper theology in the new, you need to be properly versed in the old. Together, they form one seamless message about what God is doing in Jesus Christ and for the people of the world. If someone runs ahead in one testament or the other, error will result. Not if, it will. This is as sure as the nose on your face. I'd like to do a test now. Everybody here, please, take your right index finger and put it on your nose. Does everybody here have a nose? Can you feel it? It is as sure as that. You will have bad doctrine. As far as replacement theology, that is incorrect. The church has not replaced Israel. If you want to know any other place in the Bible to figure that out, go to Leviticus 26, the last five or six verses, and you will be able to figure that out. Though not a heresy, it really is crummy doctrine. As far as hyperdispensationalism, that is incorrect as well, and it is actually worse theology than replacement theology. It can border on heresy, or depending on how it's taught, it can actually spew out heresy. Know the old to understand the new, and know the new to grasp the old. Anything else will lead you down very strange paths of poor doctrine. But guess what? You can be on the sound path if you simply follow the truths as they are laid out in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have a couple of thoughts for you today. The first is, no water for the congregation. It's verses 1 through 13. Chapter 20 now introduces the fourth major section of the book of Numbers. Verses 1-1 through 10-10 were a wilderness section there in Sinai. The next section was a road trip. It was a time of travel which went from 10-11 to 12-16. That went from Sinai to the next wilderness section, which was in the area of Paran. That was from 13-1 until 19-22. Now comes another road trip which comprises 21 until 21-35. But before I go on, I want you to understand that this is not actually correct based on the chronology of events, which you are going to see today. You need to pay very close attention to what is going to be said when and where as we go through this sermon. And that's why you have notes Read along. If you don't understand, read them again. It will come to you, okay? After the second road trip will be a final wilderness section in Moab, which will go from verses 22-1 through 36-13. For now, the road trip commences, or I will say it seems to commence with the words of verse 1, then the children of Israel. The Hebrew simply reads, and the children of Israel. Then is actually incorrect, Without careful study, there seems to be no sure way of determining where or when their last stop was. And so the word and should be translated exactly that way. But the point that is being focused on here is that of the collective group of people known as Israel. This is completely certain because of the next words. Verse 1 continues, the whole congregation. 
This is stated emphatically in the Hebrew, and it will be repeated in verse 22. A giant question for you to consider is why would that statement, that clause of this verse be emphatic here and again in verse 22? The Lord is telling us something very important. It shows that the same group in their entirety who are condemned to endure a generation in the wilderness were together as one from beginning to end. But if you understand, as most of you already do, that this is picturing Israel in punishment for disobedience to Jesus Christ and calling on him, it makes all the sense in the world. You have to put these things together in their modern context. It resolves a rather difficult problem concerning the timing of events. For now, the entire congregation, verse 1 continues, came into the wilderness of Zin. The wilderness of Zin was named in Numbers 13.21. It said, So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehov, near the entrance of Hamat. At that time, it said Israel was camped in the wilderness of Paran, and the spies went from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehov. That makes it seem like the wilderness of Paran and the wilderness of Zin are different locations. Now, it says that the whole congregation has come to the wilderness of Zin, supposedly, again. And a date is given. Verse 1 continues in the first month. No year is given. And so scholars debate whether this is the first month of the third year or the first month of the 40th year. It could be the third year because the last noted date was in Numbers 10, 11, and 12. Here's what it said. Now it came to pass on the 20th day of the second month in the second year that the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle of the testimony and the children of Israel set out from the wilderness of Sinai on their journeys. Then the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. However, one might think, as most scholars do, that it is the 40th year. Aaron's death is recorded at the end of this chapter, in the same chapter. That is said in Numbers 33 to have occurred in the 40th year. Here's what it says. Then Aaron the priest went up to Mount Hor at the command of the Lord and died there in the 40th year after the children of Israel come out of the land of Egypt on the first day of the fifth month. It is complicated. And it gets more so because while Israel was in the wilderness of Paran and after disobeying the Lord, they were told in 1425 to turn and move out into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. It seems to indicate that they did not enter into the wilderness of Zin. But a complexity arises with the next words. Verse 1 continues, and the people stayed in Kadesh. The reason why this is complicated is because Kadesh was said in verse 1326 to be in the wilderness of Paran. Here it is said to be in the wilderness of Zin. And so there are either two places named Kadesh in two different wildernesses or the two names, the wilderness of Paran and the wilderness of Zin are synonymous, but are being used by the Lord to fit the typology and pictures of Christ to come. Is your head hurting yet? I got to tell you, by this point, I'm only in verse one on sermon typing day, and it's an hour, two, two hours maybe that I've been in this one verse, and my head was hurting. It should be noted that the numbers account so far and those to come are not specifically chronological, but are placed according to a pattern in order to develop a theme. And it appears that all of the complexity found in this verse centers on the next words. Verse 1 continues, And Miriam died there and was buried there. The question to be asked then is, did Miriam die at the beginning of the time in the wilderness wandering or towards the end of it? Nothing explicit is stated, but the account today answers the question. 
It is prior to the sentencing of punishment upon them. In this, she dies many, many long years before her brother. She's dying in the third year. Aaron and Moses are dying in the 40th year. But you would not get that reading this chapter, chapter 20 of Numbers, just reading it. I have always assumed that she died at the same time as her brothers, just within a month or two. Completely inaccurate. Okay? Now I've lost my place. It is prior to the sentencing of punishment upon them. What is apparently important is that of the deaths of Miriam and Aaron, they bracket the chapter now set before us. One is at the beginning of the chapter, the other is at the end. Verse 2, now there was no water for the congregation. The name Miriam comes from two separate words, marar meaning bitter or strong, and yam, which means sea. And so her name may mean either bitter waters or waters of strength. That in itself ties in with the account now presented, and it is the reason for mentioning her death just prior to what is now stated. Here, it is specifically noted that there was no water for the congregation. This then is an internal clue that the account is in the third, not in the 40th year. If this were in the 40th year, it would be their second time in the area, and they would have known in advance that there was no water there. However, if this was the second stay, nothing was said of a lack of water in the first day. Only if this is during the time of the spies would this make any sense at all. Verse 2 continues, So they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. It is another internal clue concerning an early dating of the narrative. In chapter 17, 5, it said, And it shall be that the rod of the man whom I choose will blossom. Thus I will rid myself of the complaints of the children of Israel which they make against you. However, the people are now gathering together against Moses and Aaron to contend with them. Thus, it is the first generation who came out of Egypt and who were faithful at being unfaithful. At this time, they have gathered together against their leader. Verse 3, and the people contended with Moses and spoke. Here, the word is riv. It means to contend or strive with another. It is the same word used in Exodus 17 in the parallel account. Here's what it said there that we just read a minute ago. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended, riv, with Moses, and said, Give us water that we may drink. One can see that the two accounts are being tied together with the use of the particular words and concepts. Something is being instructed for our learning. Verse 3 continues, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Here are still more clues that this is at the beginning of the time of the punishment in wilderness wanderings. Instead of saying, Our fathers... It says our brothers. After the many years of wandering, they would have spoken of the death of their parents. Further, they use the word gava or perish. It gives the sense of breathing one's last. It was what the people were afraid of after the budding of Aaron's rod, something that will actually occur later, even though it has already been recorded. And it is the word used of Aaron's death in verse 29 of this same chapter. Only the first generation would have spoken of the perishing of their brothers, meaning those who had perished at places like Tabara and Kibrath Hata'ava. The choice of wording here seems to exclude even Korah's rebellion, which had not happened yet in the chronology of events. Four, why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness? 
The same thought again continues with these words. Why would a generation of people who had been brought into the wilderness almost 40 years earlier ask this? They wouldn't. After refusing to enter Canaan, this is exactly what the Lord said would happen. Numbers 14.33, And your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and bear the brunt of your infidelity until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. After refusing to enter Canaan, the people were under punishment of death in the wilderness. Such a question makes no sense after the ending of those long years. This is especially so because if this is the end of the time in the wilderness, it would be their second trip to the same location and the surroundings would have been known to Moses and the people. The question is unnecessary for a group that had already been made aware of the geography. Further, in their question, there is a special focus on the animals. Verse 4 continues that we and our animals should die here. Here, the be'ir or beasts are noted. It is a rather rare word being used just six times in the Bible, but three of them are in this passage in verses 4, 8, and 11. The word comes from ba'ar, meaning to burn away or to consume. They are animals that consume the land as they go. The question of their grazing animals is similar to the same type of question in Exodus 17, 3, where they are called mikne, or livestock. Paul noted in our text verse from 1 Corinthians 10 that the rock followed them meaning that from the time of this account on, the water was present with them. Only after the water came does he then say, but with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. The water came before, not after the sentence, and the concern for the animals occurred at that time, not after. It is the exact same pattern revealed in the New Testament when Christ came, Israel was offered salvation through him, but which also included the Gentiles. And then Israel received its punishment and exile. This is stated by the people explicitly in the next verse. Verse 5, and why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? Here Egypt is mentioned. It is the place from which they have been redeemed. Egypt pictures a life of bondage to sin. The Lord redeemed them from that and brought them to Sinai. One thing is for sure, which is that they have already received the law. Despite being redeemed, they are under the yoke of the law, which is its own bondage, according to Paul, as stated several times in Galatians, and as is noted elsewhere in the New Testament, such as in Acts and by the words of Jesus. Though they are freed from Egypt, the people complain that they have been brought to an evil place. They now describe what that means. Verse 5 continues, It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. There are five aspects of this place that are lacking. We just read four of them. Five is the number of grace, and it is lacking. Further, each indicates this. The first is zerah, or seed. Seed is where life generates from. Christ is noted as the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. At this point, they are under law. The law doesn't bring life. It brings death. As Paul says, I was alive once without law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Romans 7, 9. The next is the te'enah or fig. Its significance is one of a connection to God or a disconnect from him. They note that there is no fig and thus no connection to God. 
Jesus gave a foreshadowing of this when he cursed the fig in Mark 11. He said, Now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. He was making a living parable of the cutting off of the spiritual connection to God through the ineffective temple worship. No fruit was born through it, and it was to be terminated. After this is the gethen, or vine. The vine signifies the Lord's favor through the impartation of spiritual blessing. Israel is equated to a vine, but the vine became corrupt. They remained under the law, and they failed to produce Jesus is called the true vine in John 15, 1. He is the true source of spiritual blessing. He fulfilled the law and he produces abundance. The fourth thing which is lacking is the remon or pomegranate. It is associated with the word rum, to be high or exalted. It carries the connotation of mental maturity and calling to remembrance. Paul says those under the law are under a tutor. They are not mature. On the contrary, he says in Galatians 3, verse 25, that for those who are in Christ Jesus, after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Does everybody see how the very things that are named, that they say we don't have, picture to a spiritual reality, every one of them. And finally, the people exclaim, verse 5 continues, nor is there any water to drink. Imagine being out in the heat of the wilderness, dry and parched and no water. Water carries many meanings in the Bible, but the obvious connection here is to life. In this case, we have already seen that the rock is Christ and that from the rock issues water. Thus, water is life, not under the law, but life in Christ, the giving of the Spirit. The people have been given law, but the law has brought them death, not life. It has not established a suitable connection to God. It has not produced spiritual blessing. It has not brought them to spiritual maturity, and it has not brought them the spirit and life, represented by the five things that we just went through. It is Moses and Aaron who fill the positions as lawgiver and high priest under this covenant. Therefore, they go to seek the Lord. Verse 6, so Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces. It is important to note here that both Moses and Aaron left the assembly and went to the door of the tent of meeting. What will occur affects them both because both are types of Christ in regards to their positions under the law. The door of the tent of meeting means at the brazen altar. If you remember, the altar and the door are united in one. As one thought again and again and again in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and here in Numbers. There, they fall on their faces. One can get the image of the law. Think of this. The law before the Lord at the place of sacrifice. It looks to the law being humbled as it was nailed to the cross of Calvary, as Paul says in Colossians 2.14. In that picture and at that spot, it says, verse 6 continues, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The glory of the Lord is revealed to the lawgiver and the high priest. What they are to be presented with, then, is to be seen as typical of something coming in the greater work of Messiah. His glory is now given to anticipate the glory which lies ahead. The people are not satisfied with life under the law. 
It is not given what they desire, nor what they need. Moses and Aaron are there to obtain what the people need. Verse 7, then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, the Lord speaks solely to the lawgiver. The high priest's duties come from the introduction and giving forth of the law. At this time, the instructions are for Moses 2, verse 8. Take the rod. Here it is. This is not Aaron's rod which budded. We've already gone through that sermon, but that actually happens later in the chronology of events. Rather, it is the same rod used many times previously. It was called the rod of God in Exodus 4, verse 20. It was used before Pharaoh in Egypt in the performance of many miracles and wonders, including the parting of the Red Sea. It was also used to strike the rock in Exodus 17, verse 6, and it was lifted during the battle with Amalek. It was clearly used as a picture of Christ in each of those passages. Verse 8 continues, You and your brother Aaron gather the congregation together. Unlike the account in Exodus 17, where only the elders were taken to see the rock struck by Moses, now the congregation is being gathered together. Verse 8 continues, speak to the rock before their eyes. The verb is plural, ve-de-bar-tem, tem, and speak you, plural, Moses and Aaron, both of them are to speak to the rock. Verse 8 continues, and it will yield its water. By merely the spoken word of the lawgiver and the high priest in the presence of the rod, the rock will yield its water. In typology, the lawgiver is Christ. The high priest is Christ. The rock is Christ. The rod is Christ. The water is the spirit which issues from Christ. Everything is typologically given to prefigure Christ. Verse 8 continues, Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. In the account in Exodus 17, it said this, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. There is a change in what is to be done. Moses is told to speak to ha Selah or the rock. Moses doesn't question which rock. He knows where to go and what should be done. The rock is Christ. Of this there is no doubt because Paul explains it as such in 1 Corinthians 10, which was our text verse of the sermon. The Lord's word goes otherwise unexplained as to the reason, but it is the word of the Lord, and thus it is to be obeyed. Both Moses and Aaron are expected to comply. Some of the differences between the two accounts, one, there only the elders went. Here the congregation goes. Two, there it says Hatsur. The rock. Here it says ha selah, the rock. Tsur comes from a root meaning to confine, bind, or besiege. Selah comes from an unused root meaning lofty. Why the difference? Because the Lord is telling you something by using a different word translated in both as rock. Three, the Lord said he would stand before Moses on the rock in Exodus here that is left unstated. For there Moses struck the rock. Here Moses and Aaron are to speak to it. There the people may drink. Here the congregation and the animals will drink. Verse 9. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. The rod is said to have been Milifne Yehovah or before the Lord. 
Thus it was to be kept in the most holy place of the tabernacle. It is to be brought out for the bringing forth of the water, but only by its presence, not by its action. 10. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. The assembly implying any or all of the people are brought el pene hasalah, or to the face of the rock, meaning before the rock. Verse 10 continues, and he said to them, here now, you rebels. The object is a verb. It is not a noun. He says, shimu na hamorim. Here I pray the rebelling. Moses was not told to reproach the people for their rebellion, but rather he was to speak to the rock and it was to issue forth water for their thirst. What they needed was to be supplied solely as grace from the Lord. However, Moses sees the people as being in a state of rebellion, and that is to be corrected. But who will do that? Verse 10 continues, Must we bring water for you out of this rock? The words are not what the Lord directed. Although it would be fine to speak out what will happen, Moses acts as if it is not of the Lord's doing, but that of Moses and Aaron. What is that picturing? It is a plural verb indicating that he and Aaron will bring the water out of the rock as if by their effort. Verse 11, then Moses lifted his hand and struck twice with his rod. This is in complete disobedience to the Lord. Nothing was said for them to strike the rock and certainly not twice, but he did. Despite his disobedience, the grace to the people is imparted anyway. Verse 11 continues, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. The water flowed forth, and it was sufficient for all. As it says in verse 8, the animals are once again noted as being provided the same water as the congregation. Verse 12, then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. Both are addressed the lawgiver first, and the high priest who represents the sacrificial system of the law. They are combined into one judgment by the next words of the Lord. Verse 12 continues, because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Here is another clue that the events precede the punishment levied upon the people to wander in the wilderness and thus Miriam's death. Along with the entire account, it is in the first month of the third year. In Numbers 14.30, the Lord said this to Moses, Except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. It was already understood at that time that Moses and Aaron would not enter Canaan. And so it is certain that this account fits into the time frame that the 12 spies we're gone to Canaan. And this is actually then seen in the otherwise incomprehensible words of Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 34 through 40. And the Lord heard the sound of your words and was angry and took an oath saying, surely not one of these men of this evil generation shall see that good land of which I swore to give your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it. And to him and his children, I am giving the land on which he walked because he wholly followed the Lord. The Lord, here it is, was also angry with me for your sakes, saying, even you shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall go in there. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Moreover, your little ones and your children, who you say will be victims who today have no knowledge of good and evil, 
They shall go in there. To them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and take your journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. Moses notes that his punishment came before or at the same time as the punishment of the people. And only after that does the Lord go on to tell him to turn with the people away from Canaan and towards the Red Sea. Why is this important? It is because it then fits the typology of everything we previously saw in all of our sermons. If you paid attention to the typology, you know that this fits properly. Our verses today fit chronologically between Numbers 13.21 and Numbers 13.25 when it says the spies went up to Canaan, went around, came back down, and arrived at Moses' tent. This is where that belongs. In this account, Moses was told to speak to the rock, not strike it. To understand what occurred in the Exodus 17 sermon, I'm sorry, but you will have to go back and watch that entire sermon. But in short, it pictured Christ being struck in his fulfillment of the law. It is the same word, nakha, or strike, there as was used of Christ in Isaiah chapter 53, which said, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten, that word there, nakha, smitten by God and afflicted. Moses was told now to speak to the rock because it was not to picture Christ's sufferings leading to the giving of the Spirit, but the giving of the Spirit through the speaking of the word of faith. This is seen in Paul's words to the Galatians. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Remember what Moses and Aaron picture. The law works. Moses and Aaron representing the law are in capable of speaking the word of faith. Verse 13, this was the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel contended with the Lord. Again, as in verse 23, the word riv is used. It means to contend or strive. Thus, the place is named Meribah. If you can see it, it's right there in the middle of the word, Meribah, okay? It means quarreling or place of quarreling. As is commonly the case, the place is named because of the surrounding circumstances. The children of Israel quarreled, and the Lord resolved the matter. In the process, he was hallowed among his people. Verse 13 finishes with, and he was hallowed among them. The verb here, and in the previous verse, kadash, is of the same root as the name kadesh. Thus, the place also gets its name from the events which surround the circumstances. This then explains why the name of the place Kadesh was not used before the spies went out in Numbers 13, but it was used upon their return. The events here occurred during the time that the spies were in Canaan. However, the name was used, as we saw in that sermon, for a specific reason of showing us other hints of the future. In order to maintain the typology of various stories, the Lord introduces events at intervals which are not necessarily chronological, and yet which show us marvelous hints of redemptive history as they are placed into these sacred writings. Where will we find water to drink to quench our thirst? 
This is a parched and barren land. If only the waters through this rock would burst, we could drink until filled. Wouldn't it be grand? We know the waters are there, but what can we do? We have given all of our effort, but not a drop have we obtained. But we believe the waters will burst through, and then from them true life we will have gained. What is the secret? How can we obtain a drink? Who will open the rock and bring it out for us? Is it really so simple that faith is the link? Just believe and receive from the Lord Jesus? Surely he has done the work, and so he can the waters give. If we but trust him by the waters of life, surely we will live. Our second thought today is pictures of Christ. Isn't this marvelous? I mean, you're the first people, as far as I know, in human history that have gotten these details. And I mean that sincerely. The account begins in the wilderness of Zin, meaning the thorn. It is a picture, as it has been before, of the cross of Christ. Miriam is said to have died at this time. In the Numbers 12 sermon, and the Bible is always consistent, she was seen to represent the prophetic witness of Israel. That ended at the time of Christ. There is no longer a prophetic witness for the time of the law of Moses. Any future prophecy falls under the new covenant. Here, she dies prior to the time of punishment upon Israel. Only after that, then will Israel be sentenced to punish in the wilderness, just as Israel was sentenced to perish among the nations after rejecting Christ. In this area, there is no water for the people. They have been brought out of the bondage of Egypt, but to an evil place. It is the time of the law, which only highlights their sin. It cannot take it from them, except through a fulfillment of the law. They noted five aspects of life that were lacking. Seed, figs, vines, pomegranates, and water. As we saw, the lack of these pictured life under the law. It brought them death, not life. It did not establish a suitable connection to God. It did not produce spiritual blessings, which is the vine. It could not bring them to spiritual maturity, which is the pomegranate. And it did not bring them the spirit and life pictured by the water. At this time, Moses and Aaron, the law and its sacrificial system, go before the Lord and fall on their faces. And he appears to them in glory. It pictures the radiance of Christ before which the law is brought to its place of humility. They are told to take the rod. The rod which has not been mentioned since Exodus chapter 17 is suddenly reintroduced for this parallel passage. It is said to have been Milifne Yehovah or before the Lord. It is a picture of Christ after completing his work. Did he stay here on earth? No, he went to his position of authority before God in heaven. Therefore, it is in the most holy place. It is brought out in order to bring forth the spirit, not through action, but through presence alone. It is a note of the deity of Jesus Christ, his omnipresence. Wherever the word of faith in Christ is spoken, the spirit will issue forth, but not by deeds of the law, rather by faith alone. By merely the spoken word of the lawgiver and the high priest in the presence of the rod, which pictures Christ, the rock is expected to yield forth its water. As we saw, the lawgiver is Christ, the high priest is Christ, the rock is Christ, the water is the spirit of Christ, the rod is Christ. Everything looks to prefigure Christ and the grace which comes from him. This is how it is. The giving of the new covenant and the sacrificial work of the high priest yields forth the spirit. The Lord told Moses and Aaron, the lawgiver and high priest of the law, to speak to the rock and bring forth water. 
both were to speak. As noted, there are some differences, though, between Exodus 17 and this account here. One, there, only the elders went. Here, the congregation goes. The elders pictured the apostles in that sermon who were witnesses of Christ's work. Here, and because of their word, all can see the work of Christ. Two, there it says Ha-Sur, the rock. Here it says Ha-Selah, the rock. Tsur comes from a root meaning to confine, bind, or besiege. Selah comes from an unused root meaning lofty. In Exodus 17, it pictured Christ's suffering. He was besieged. Here it pictures Christ's exaltation. In both, he is the rock. Three, the Lord said he would stand before Moses on the rock in Exodus. Here, that is left unstated. There, the Lord stood before the law in fulfillment of it. Here, the Lord is unseen. The water comes from an act of faith. Four, there Moses was to strike the rock. Here, Moses and Aaron are to speak to it. Christ was struck for our sins before the law. After that, Christ is received by the word of faith. The law has no part in the issuance of the Spirit except as it was previously fulfilled by Christ. Five, there the people may drink. Here, the congregation and the animals will drink. How do you show that all are included in the spiritual blessings of Jesus Christ when it is simply a single nation of people in the wilderness? You use typology. The animals in the wilderness, though not Israel, guess what? They share in the commonwealth and blessings of Israel. It is a picture of Gentiles being given the same water of life as Israel. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In one passage, we have disputed and overridden both Reformed theology, meaning replacement theology, and hyper-dispensationalism. They are both incorrect from one passage of Scripture. However, Moses and Aaron violated what the Lord spoke. They destroyed the symbolism, and they were consigned to die in the wilderness with the people. It is an obvious picture of the ending of the law of Moses before the people are restored to God. As we have seen from the chronology, Moses and Aaron are actually assigned their punishment before the congregation receives theirs, not after. It points to the death of the law coming prior to the punishment and exile of Israel in A.D. 70. And this is exactly how the New Testament reveals this chronology. However, Moses and Aaron live up until the 40th year of wanderings. We're going to see that starting next week. Likewise, Israel remains under the law until just prior to the end of their time of punishment, meaning they're still under the law right now. That is the purpose of the tribulation period and the last seven years of the law. Only those who lived by faith, pictured by Joshua and Caleb, would enter into God's promised rest. Verse 12 said, Because you did not believe me, to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. The law is not of faith, but of works. It is 
also incapable of bringing man to heaven. Only Christ Jesus could do that. The man who does the things of the law shall live by them. Leviticus chapter 18. Under the law, there is only quarreling and strife. Until the waters of the Spirit come forth, there cannot be contentment. This is why Miriam's death is so important in this account and why it occurred now prior to the coming of the water and the sentence of punishment upon the people. Her life was used as symbolic of the prophetic witness to Israel. Her death ends that time of prophetic witness, just as John the Baptist was the last to prophesy before the coming of Christ. In his death, that prophecy of the law is ended. Time and time and time again, people send me videos of some Jew or some Jew's son, some rabbi having a vision, a prophecy, That is incorrect. They are under law and there is no prophetic witness for Israel. If somebody sends you that, you can disregard it. We get our doctrine from the Bible, not from supposed visions of Jews who have not come to Jesus Christ because he is the spirit of prophecy as it says in the book of Revelation. Further, her name, Miriam, means bitter waters or waters of strength. It is used in type to show what occurred both to those who remain under the law and how they would fare after the giving of the Spirit. As you can see, the teaching mentioned at the beginning of the sermon concerning the two accounts of the giving of the water from the rock in Exodus 17 and then again here, which said that it reflected Christ's first and second advents, is entirely wrong. It doesn't fit the typology. Rather, it is the same account revealed with two different truths, all occurring in his first advent. The first account in Exodus 17 pictured Christ, under the law, struck for our sins in order for the Spirit to be given. The second account is Israel's rejection of Christ and holding to the law instead. Thus, they struck him twice through that act. In this and for Israel, it can be said, Three strikes, and you're out. This is why it's important to go methodically, verse by verse, through the Old Testament. To simply make a conclusion based on such a passage alone will inevitably, remember the nose on your face? It will inevitably result in a faulty conclusion based on a presupposition of what the account supposedly says. For now, this is the lesson of this marvelous, and I mean marvelous, passage of Scripture The Lord is, as he does consistently, revealing to us pictures of the immensely glorious workings of God in Christ. Let us pay attention to the words, because before I did this sermon, I was under the same impression as everybody else was. Until you go methodically, let us respond by living in faith and by faith alone in what he has done for us through his Son, our Lord Jesus You've heard the sermons. You may have been here for the Exodus 17 sermon. If you haven't, I'd ask you to go back and watch it and then watch this one a second time so you see what's going on. In the end, the details all point to one thing. We are without God because we have sin in our lives. Sin is in the world and it has taken over humankind. And God sent his son to correct that. He sent Jesus Christ to live out the law, which only condemns us, as we've seen several times in today's passage. The law condemns. It does not bring life. Only through a sinless person can the law bring life. That doesn't mean he's going to. He still has to live out the law, but Christ was born sinless, so he could potentially do it. And then the Gospels record his life, that he actually did it. He didn't just come sinless, he stayed sinless. Adam was born sinless, but he failed. Christ came and he prevailed. 
And so if you want to be restored to God and spend eternity in his presence, in glory, glory, with water streaming forth from the throne of God and drinking of that water of life for all eternity instead of just the opposite, the pit of hell, the lake of fire, then you need to come to Jesus Christ and yield to him. Submit to him and say, God, I am a sinner. I understand that you sent your son to live the life I can't live and you allowed him to go to a torturous cross to take my sin debt. What a God that would allow this. People diminish the cross. They belittle it. They say, oh, God is a cosmic... uh, child abuser that is the most loving thing that has ever occurred in all of the stream of human existence was the coming of christ and dying on that cross do not diminish what he did his blood is the only thing that can bring you back to god our closing verse comes from psalm 78 it's verse 15 he split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink in abundance like the depths he also brought streams out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers wonderful god all picturing what he has done for us in the church of jesus christ i'm not talking about the mormon church when i say that i'm talking about his church he issued forth that water replacement theology wrong hyper dispensationalism wrong all you need to do is come to this one sermon instead people run ahead with new testament theology and don't go properly through the old next week is numbers 20 14 through 29. I mean, it's the second half of this, and it's 40 years later. Actually, uh, what, 40 minus 30 is 37 years later. Okay? Wonderful stuff in there. Wandering under punishment must be a bummer for sure. It's entitled From Kadesh to Mount Hor. That'll be our, guess what? 39th Numbers Sermon. Why is that important? I told, I couldn't resist. I said, Sergio, there's a really cool pattern here, and I wasn't going to tell him, and he was like, And I said, should I tell you? Oh, yeah, let me tell you. He went, oh, my goodness. Wonderful stuff. Just a little little treat, but our 39th number sermon happens to match up with some biblical numbers. Very cool. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you were lost in the desert, wandering aimlessly, but the Lord is there carefully leading you to the land of promise. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Got a poem and we'll be done. The waters of Meribah. Then the children of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, as we are made aware. And the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered together against Moses and Aaron as an angry horde. And the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought us up from the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we and our animals should die here? This is a real pickle and a giant mess. And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink, not even a trace. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Such was the greeting. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, these words to him he was then relaying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together as well. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water as to you, I tell. Thus you shall bring for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals, both the herd and the flock. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him according to his word. 
Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them in a stern talk, Here now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock with his rod twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank water, refreshing and nice. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not into the land which I have given them bring this assembly. This was the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel contended with the Lord, and he was hallowed among them, among that disobedient horde. Lord God, we are even now in a wilderness, and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct our lives would be a mess, and so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. Here it is. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock, our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand, and may we take it into our lives daily. It apply, and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Before I say my prayer, I forgot to ask you your question. So I got to ask it right now. This is a give me, folks. What is the last chapter of the Bible that mentions water? Genesis. The last chapter of the Bible. Revelation. Revelation what? What, what chapter in Revelation mentions water? 39. 20. 39. There's no 39. Well, I don't know. Revelation, <laughs> ends, <laughs> Revelation ends with 22. Yeah. Revelation 22. As a matter of fact, let me take you there and read it. Okay, you thought it was the last chapter, though, right? And you probably did, too, because you said 20, thinking it was the last chapter. You should have just said the last chapter of Revelation, but I'll give you the Maserati. Hang on, we're going to go there. Last page of the Bible. Last page of the Bible. And here it says in verse 17, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Marvelous stuff in God's word. Marvelous. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this congregation that so cherishes your word, that is willing to search out these mysteries week after week. And some of them are difficult and some of them aren't super exciting and they may not tell us how to cook our omelet on Thursday morning, but they tell us of Jesus and they reveal your heart to us. Thank you for this congregation that appreciates this word. And anybody that ever listens to these sermons and said, I was blessed by that, thank you for them as well because this is your heart for us on this planet is this word. You spent 1,600 years making it out for us to not sit on a corner in a dusty shelf, but to pull out and to read and to cherish. Thank you for this wonderful, superior word. And Lord, you know the people that we mentioned at the beginning of this sermon and any others that are on our hearts. Darla isn't here still. She's probably still struggling. We certainly pray for her. And any others that we have forgotten to mention, Lord, please be with these people. Help them through their troubles. And we'll pray that Pat and Cindy are okay. They weren't here at Bible study, so we'll include them in this as well. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we exalt you, and we do so in the exalted name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our water giver. Amen.